Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. And today I'll be talking to Matt Guardino, who is the author of Framing Inequality, News Media, Public Opinion, and the Neoliberal Turn in U.S. Public Policy, a very long title for a very interesting book published by Oxford University Press this year. Uh, I have the pleasure to have Matt on the phone right now. Matt, how are you doing? Uh, Good. How are you, Heath? I'm doing great. Uh, I enjoyed the book. Uh, It's nuance. It's big argument. Uh, Before we get to it, uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Sure. Uh, So I'm an associate professor of political science at Providence College. And my research, as you could probably tell by the title of the book, is mainly in political communication, media, and public policy. Yeah, wonderful. And, and as sort of the title and more, more likely the, the, the subtitle suggests, you're trying to accomplish a lot in this book. There's a lot of uh, moving parts that you weave together in such an interesting way. There's this central puzzle to your book that you raise as a, as a question early in chapter one. And that is this paradoxical relationship between public opinion on general versus specific questions of social welfare policy. I wonder if we could start off by uh, asking you to explain a little bit about this motivation for the book and what interested you about this puzzle. Uh, Sure. So um, most survey research going back actually several decades and and kind of uh, even into the 1950s and 60s, shows that there is majority or heavy plurality support for generally liberal or left-leaning approaches to most economic and social welfare policies. So when we ask people general questions such as, uh, do they want to increase or decrease taxes on, say, corporations or the wealthy, most people tend to give the more liberal or left-wing answer on those questions. Uh, However, uh, there's something strange I thought was going on, which is that at least since the early 1980s, during specific debates about some important specific policies, uh, several of which I study in the book, uh, majorities have given the conservative response to those policies in public opinion polls. So when asked specifically about, say, the Reagan economic plan of 1981 or particular provisions in welfare reform in the mid-1990s, there seemed to be some kind of a disconnect between attitudes expressed on those versus uh, people's general attitudes. And uh, I became more and more interested in trying to understand why that might be as I got more interested in 
economic and social welfare policy in the context of rising inequality, which is uh, has been a big part of my was a big part of my graduate school work and continuing research in my academic career. Yeah, and as you noted at the beginning, of this this is a book uh, that's also about the media, and and there there's sort of two conventional takes on the media. One is that that the media is a sort of neutral arbiter of facts. And the other is that the individual biases of journalists tend to slant coverage of issues. And this is sort of the the essence of of, uh, the Trump claims about the media. I wonder what's wrong with this conventional logic on the media? And what do you seek to add to the conversation sort of theoretically? And then we'll get to sort of the empirics of the book after that. But uh, sort of take us to the, the study of media and, and what you think is missing. So I would say particularly in political science, but also in, you know, sort of the popular discussions we often have about what drives political news coverage, you've hit the nail on the head about what the two main views are. And I think that both of those views, although they probably have some truth to each of them, are uh, inadequate to really understand what's going on. Uh, most of the research in media studies and political communication suggests that individual views of journalists, uh, especially their partisan or ideological views, and even views of media owners, uh, in most cases, don't seem to have much of an effect on political news coverage. Uh, For reasons that I get into in the book, primarily because of the institutional forces and the organizational pressures that exist within the news media itself. In addition, I think it's a mistake to suggest that the media could ever be a fully neutral sort of vessel for, say, partisan elites or others to put forward their claims or a kind of neutral arbiter of the quote-unquote real world. It's not set up to do that. So I think we need to think perhaps a little more carefully about this and look inside the media, look at the institutional and the structural influences on what comes out in terms of political news, but especially public policy news. Now, in thinking about this, much of your book is about um, change over time. Um, and, and when you think about the media and, and acknowledging sort of what you just said, is this something that has changed uh, in any significant way? You mainly studied 1980 onward, um, but the, the structure of media uh, that that uh, that uh, imposes these pressures that you describe is that something that's changed, or is this this sort of baked into the way in which media has been structured for a long time? Uh, that's an excellent question, and and the answer is not simple. Uh, what I argue, and you know, based on a lot of research that's been done again in communication and media studies, especially historical work, is that the basic structure and institutional parameters of the mainstream media in the U.S. have been the same for several decades, really actually going back even to the post-World War II period. However, starting around the mid to late 1970s, just as sort of more free market approaches to public policy more broadly became popular uh, in, in governance, similar kinds of approaches have become popular in media policy. So media policy, so we're talking about things here like media regulations, regulation of ownership, uh, funding for public media, those sorts of policies have changed. And they've changed in ways, I argue, that actually make some of the commercial pressures and the kind of uh, corporate 
influences on how news is produced uh, make those pressures stronger and reinforce them. So uh, over time, uh, we've seen, for example, less investment in serious journalism at most news organizations from corporate cost cutting, uh, as well as just a greater drive to produce commercially desirable news, which I argue in the book uh, encourages uh, less than substantive coverage of important policy debates, uh, particularly in this, again, this period since the early 1980s. So you use this phrase in the book, media refraction, and it's an important one and not one that's, that's obvious from it's just it's, it's the words. What do you mean by this? What do you mean by media refraction? And, and how does this work in, in theory? We'll then sort of see how you test this with the, the empirical parts of the book. But, but what is media refraction? So I'll start with a kind of big picture point to make about the theory, which is that it defines the media really as a political institution, uh, not unlike parties or interest groups, right, institutions that political scientists more conventionally define as political. And it suggests that media as an institution can have important political effects, even if those effects aren't as explicit or direct as they might be for, say, political parties. And the way that media refraction kind of explains those effects is by sort of defining a sort of filtering process, right, by which a sort of broader and more diverse set of societal ideas about public policy gets translated into popular news coverage, which then can, in some cases, influence public opinion. So the refraction idea is just that uh, a broader set of discourse out there in society gets uh, bent or changed or shaped in particular ways through the institutions of the media. So when I talk about the institutions, I'm talking about things like the norms that professional journalists follow in their everyday practices, and how those interact with the structure of the industry, which, of course, as I suggested before, is shaped by important media policies. And so media refraction is how those factors interact to refract, to shape news coverage in policy debates. So if your theory is right, what would we expect to see in, in media coverage? What sort of in, in simple terms what would this theory predict um, uh, about the, 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 the media that we consume, uh, its patterns, its, its volume? Oh, what, what are the expectations of this? So in a, in a broad sense, what it would suggest is that news that is fast to produce, that's cost efficient, uh, and that is not likely to alienate core audience segments for media is going to be the kind of news that's privileged. And so in the context of policy debates and, and public policy coverage, what we're talking about here is, uh, first of all, uh, a fairly limited volume of hard news uh, about these subjects. Uh, for example, uh, more focus on personalities, more focus on kind of dramatic or shocking events, less focus on the kind of substantive information about policies, how they might affect various people, various parts of the population, uh, less focus on the, the ideas behind the policies and the ideological debates, and more on these more superficial aspects, including uh, personalities and political strategy. Uh, and also, uh, it, the theory suggests that 
the range of discourse that gets produced by the media during these debates will be substantially narrowed by media refraction. And what I mean by this is that uh, one of the most prominent uh, sources of views in the mainstream media is political elites, particularly powerful and well-known government officials. Uh, what I suggest is that that tendency gets amplified uh, through media refraction. And so views that are not expressed by those powerful officials are much less likely to get an airing because of these uh, pressures that I've been talking about. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off now the empirical parts of the book uh, address uh, primarily three cases uh, so where did you focus your energy empirically and and uh, why did you choose these three cases in particular uh, so i have two what i would call main case studies one is the reagan economic plan of the early 1980s the second is welfare reform in the mid-1990s and then a third uh, case study, uh, mini case study, I would say, of the debate over extending the George W. Bush tax cuts in the Obama administration. And uh, I focused on these for really two sets of reasons. So, so first, because these debates have been particularly important from a political and a policy standpoint in uh, what I call the neoliberal turn public policy. So this move toward more free market approaches to public policy which uh, arguably have exacerbated inequality. Uh, and the second set of reasons why I chose those cases is because they have certain analytic features uh, that allow me to examine similarities and differences across the cases. So for example, uh, they are under different uh, presidencies in terms of a Republican in office and then a Democrat in office during the mid 1990s debate, as well as in the Obama. Uh, debate uh, in Congress. The partisan alignments are different across the cases, uh, which allows me to see how that might affect media coverage. Um, and as well, they're at different time points in this kind of overall free market shift. Um, and so that's generally why I chose those cases. What, what I'm looking at in the case studies are we're trying to provide sort of what you might call anatomies of policy debates where I trace the connections between the discourse that official and unofficial sources express. So looking at, say, presidential speeches, congressional debate, statements from interest groups, et cetera. Uh, the second thing I look at is, of course, major television and print news coverage in popular media outlets during those debates. 
And then the third is contemporary polling data. And I'm analyzing uh, the connections between those three and seeing, you know, sort of how they uh, shape up. Yeah. And, and the, the, the first of the cases I thought was so interesting because it's pre-Fox News, uh, the the initial uh, data collection and, and analysis of the Reagan revolution happens in the early 1980s. And you express this in a number of different ways. But what do we learn uh, about about uh, whether your theory holds for for this time period of the early 1980s? Uh, does it support your your expectations? Um, it actually did. Although one thing that I also found is that there seemed to be sort of what I would call an intensification of these media refraction pressures across time, you know, as we go from the early case of the Reagan era right forward in time. But uh, the, the similar dynamics seem to be present in the first case. So there's a heavy focus, for example, my analyses of the news suge- suggest on uh, the elite personalities involved in the debate, of course, President Reagan being the most prominent among them, a focus on coverage of the political strategies of each side and much less coverage than we might expect of concrete facts about the policy or the policies that were being debated at the time, as well as a very, very heavy focus on uh, official sources, especially the Reagan administration and Republicans in, in Congress. Now, what would you say to the argument that this is simply the right way to view these issues, that this is the way that the news media uh, should have covered? This was the right distribution. This was the right take on on uh, uh, the time period and the re- uh, related policy issues. Um, what What is your argument? Sort of how does your argument fit with, with that kind of conventional take on the news media as simply providing a, a mirror to what's going on? Uh, are, is the media distorting uh, the coverage of, of social welfare policies during this time period, or are they simply getting the story right? Uh, well, that's a, obviously a crucial question. And uh, my argument is that one useful way to look at that, and there are a lot of different ways that, that we might try to assess that question, but one useful way is to look at what voices in important parts of society are saying about the policy debate and the extent to which those voices get reflected in the media. Presumably, if uh, credible interest groups, for example, policy experts, and especially people in government, members of Congress, are making statements, say, uh, against the Reagan economic plan, right, to what extent are those appearing in the news in rough proportion to the way they appear right outside the news? And so I did some empirical analysis, for example, of the congressional debate about the Reagan economic plan to try to get a sense of, right, what the connection between those two might be. And and I find that if we view the media's job as reflecting uh, as best as possible the, the range of discourse about a policy, it didn't do a very good job in the Reagan economic plan case because members of Congress, primarily Democrats, spoke frequently uh, against the plan on the floor of Congress. Many policy experts and interest groups also spoke publicly against the plan. And that discourse was de-emphasized or marginalized in favor of primarily Reagan administration voices uh, in that case. And I, I really found similar dynamics in 
the welfare reform case as well, of course, the partisan alignments uh, were different then. Yeah, the 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 um, analysis of of the welfare reform time period connects coverage in some ways to public opinion. Um, what do you find on the link to this? Who's 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 leading the discussion? Who's following the discussion? Who's uh, whose opinions are are being changed? And and are they at all? Are people um, uh, is the general public responding to the uh, way in which the media is is framing welfare reform as in in the ways that you describe make those maybe you can make those connections for us as as you saw it in the book yeah so in the case studies themselves especially the first the two primary case studies we've been talking about there is suggestive evidence based on the polling data that I compiled that there that there may have been effects of this media discourse on public opinion in support of these neoliberal policies. And so uh, when you look at randomly, uh, randomly, random sample national polls, you find support for these policies and for particular aspects of the policies and particular arguments about the policies that I find empirically were prominent in the news coverage. So there is a kind of connection between those two. Of course, that does not in itself uh, demonstrate a causal effect, which is why I also, in one chapter of the book, report uh, an online experiment that I conducted uh, that exposes people to different forms of news coverage that are modeled on the case studies and then gauges the actual effects on public opinion. And what I find is, in fact, these forms of coverage can affect public opinion, uh, especially among people who are not as uh, ideologically driven, for example, people who are weaker partisans and independents and moderates, and also among people who are uh, less educated and uh, even those we might expect would normally oppose neoliberal policies like low and middle income people. They can be, it seems, encouraged to support such policies by engaging with the kinds of news coverage that is uh, uh, that was prominent in these policy cases across the period. I wonder, and maybe in kind of conclusion, you can talk a little bit about what you make of our of our current uh, media time period, uh, where we hear a lot about uh, media siloing, uh, echo chambers, uh, which would seem to be a little different than what you uh, have studied in the past. Have have times changed? Or is this uh, explanation we're getting about how the media and politics works now a little bit off? So what about right now? Uh, In fact, times have changed, but I also think because of these changing times, we've maybe missed some important things that are still going on. And so certainly there's more sort of explicitly ideological or partisan media out there. And because of the online world and social media, especially people especially strong partisans, are better able to kind of construct their news diets around that, that type of news. Um, however, it's still the case that mainstream news, including the online versions of television networks and major newspapers, which is what I primarily empirically study in, in the book, that kind of news has an extremely broad reach, it, especially among sort of those less ideologically driven folks uh, who have weaker partisan identities, again, which I find are most uh, open to the framing influences that I study in the book. Uh, 
Uh, so if you look at, for example, uh, the, the traffic numbers for uh, how many people go on a monthly basis to various news websites, you find that it's overwhelmingly traffic flowing to these mainstream news organizations still. Uh, the last thing I would say is that we need to understand that even as technology changes, which introduces its own dynamics, such as partisan siloing, uh, some of the forces that I discuss in the book are arguably becoming even stronger. And so the influence of commercialism uh, is arguably increasing in online news because there's more of a competition for advertising dollars, uh, which I argue in the book has effects on the quality of policy coverage. Um, and so that's still continuing and arguably increasing. The other thing is uh, the speed up of the news cycle is right continuing apace, which is going to further discourage deeper, more substantive coverage of public policy simply because uh, it produces pressures on journalists to uh, get stories out quickly, uh, without as much research, without as much time to kind of reach outside familiar sources and familiar voices. And the last thing I would say is that for all of the great democratic advances, we might argue that online media has produced, uh, it's also played a big role in this retrenchment of journalistic resources. Uh, so cost cutting at news organizations has continued in this environment of, of greater competition. And in order to produce substantive and diverse public policy coverage, news organizations need uh, well-trained, well-resourced, and large numbers of journalists. And outside of a few prestigious outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post over the last couple of years, uh, those cutbacks seem to be uh, continuing and maybe even intensifying under the influence of uh, online and digital media. Yeah, the book again is Framing Inequality, News Media, Public Opinion, and the Neoliberal Turn in U.S. Public Policy. The book is published by Oxford University Press this year, and the author is Matt Cordino. Matt, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, thank you, Heath. It's been great to be here. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.